Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Season two is turning into a really incredible season, and I feel fortunate to be able to talk to so many incredible people doing serious and heartfelt work. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot going on in the world, and a lot of misinformation is being spread. This past week, YouTube committed to removing anything containing vaccine misinformation. That includes anything related to vaccines causing autism, which they don't, causing cancer, which they don't. In fact, they're being used to cure cancer. Inserting microchips, which they definitely don't have. And the list goes on. In an unprecedented step, they've also committed to terminating the accounts of anti-vaccine influencers that spread this type of false information. It's timely to bring this up because YouTube came up in this week's episode. In a time of mistrust, misinformation, and propaganda, we need voices of truth, voices of clarity, and voices of reason to cut through all the noise. One of those voices is that of this week's guest, Lee McIntyre. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and Science at Boston University, and he's also the author of a new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. It is, among other things, a guide to how all of us, not just scientists, can tackle the machine of deception and obfuscation of facts. So let's get to it and talk about what's going on and what we can do about it. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, this is really going to be a lot of fun for a few reasons, and it also informative, and I think really helpful, not just for scientists, but for non-scientists. Um, and as a scientist that does a little bit of communication, uh, I've been looking forward to talking with you, and I really enjoyed your new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. Before jumping into the book, I'm curious what motivated you. You're a philosopher, right? right? I should I should say that. Um, so, what motivated you to focus on philosophy? On philosophy, well, you know, it's funny because I sort of came to philosophy through science. As a boy, I had always admired scientists, and you know, just been very interested. We've got some thunder outside. Uh, I had always been very interested in uh, what scientists were up to and how unique uh, science was as a as a form of human reason. And then I went to college planning to be an astronomy major, and because of distribution requirements, I had to take a course in economics, where the first day the professor said so you know uh, we and we read thomas kuhn so that's an interesting uh, uh 
economist who had us read Thomas Kuhn. And he said, so this book shows why economics can't be a science. And I thought, what do you mean it can't be a science? And I just got fascinated with that question of what, why some things were scientific and some were not. What was the difference, if there was any, between natural and social science? So I did that during college, but then when it came time to decide what to do with my life, I thought I'm going to go to philosophy grad school because economists or uh, astronomers are never going to let me do what I want to do, but philosophers might. And so I got interested in uh, going to philosophy grad school and just pursued the philosophy of science ever since. That's fascinating. And that also maybe explains how you ended up marrying together both of your passions, right? Because um, not just this book, but your previous books, which um, I think were post-truth. There were two more uh, that dealt with the topic of science yeah, and the um, scientific attitude. Yeah, the yeah. scientific attitude. And 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 this one, how to talk to a science denier, is, is that sort of accurate that you were able to bring together your two passions when it comes to the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and the other thing that's happened in recent years is I think there's a call for more um, scientists and friends of science and philosophers of science and others, just the allies of science, to get involved in defending truth, evidence, reason, uh, you know, (laughs) data, however you want to think of it. And so as a philosopher of science, you know, somebody who'd been thinking about these questions about truth and evidence for years, all of a sudden they were on CNN. All of a sudden people were talking about facts. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, really a, a great chance to um, make a contribution to the national or international conversation about this, because uh, philosophers don't often have a voice in this. And it's something I really cared about. And so that's when I, I had been writing for the general public for uh, previous years, I did an earlier book called Dark Ages, where I really uh, started down that road. But I'm, uh, yeah, that that was what really, uh, what really motivated me. It's interesting, because I remember a Pew survey. um, And I'm just going to tell listeners, we have Gigi and Dante joining us. Those are we, your we two do. companion animals, um, <laughs> beautiful German shepherds. I can see them. Unfortunately, listeners cannot. Um, but I remember a Pew survey that indicated that a chunk of people in the United States were opposed to genetically modified organisms because they didn't want any DNA in their food. It was at that point for me that I became genuinely concerned about the level of basic scientific knowledge and critical thinking skills. And my concern was less about the feelings of genetically modified organisms and more about the knowledge that all food has DNA and unless maybe it's a rock and then you might question right. why you're eating rocks. Salt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or salt. Right. So everything that we eat theoretically yeah. should. So <laughs> so that was my turning point of saying, uh, oh, how is it that people don't know something like this and became curious? Did you have a particular moment other than it appearing on CNN that caused you to a conversation or a piece of research that made you go, oh, my goodness, I really I really have to step up here and, and do something about it? Now, I've been interested in the topic of science denial for a long time. So evolution denial and, you know, climate denial have, have been bothering me for a long time. 
what really made me step up, what really made me decide I don't need to just write about this. I need to get out there and talk to people. And then, of course, write about it was when uh, on a uh, on a whim, I Googled to see what was up with the uh, flat earth community. <laughs> Because I had been out uh, doing publicity in support of my earlier book, The Scientific Attitude, and this was kind of the, you know, the height of the pushback against science and truth during the, the Trump era. And folks were saying to me, you know, in the Q&A after a talk, what should we be doing? You know, how can we stand up for facts and truth? And I would say things like, well, go out and talk with people who disagree with you. And then I thought, why am I not doing that? You know, I'm in Nebraska, I'm in Georgia, but I'm in these blue bubbles at the universities, you know, talking to people who already agree with me. So when I got home from that last trip, I, I Googled, um, Flat Earth. And I found out that they were having a convention in Denver, Colorado in November 2018. And I went. And that was what really convinced me, because it's one thing to sit in your study and think about it and write about it for 10 years. It's another thing to get out and actually talk to people. And as a philosopher, I'm used to arguing, but not like this, because it was a, you know, it was a very different sort of a, uh, an experience. And that's what got me fascinated with the question, not just how to convince somebody, but how to get them to listen, how to even have a conversation about facts when their beliefs were not really based on facts. How do you how do you make any progress at all? And so that was my challenge for myself. Would have been nice if I'd convinced a flat earther to give up their beliefs. Truth is, by the time they're at a convention, they may be too far gone for that. But uh, but I don't know, uh, you know what the effect was. I do know that I went to that convention. It was a searing experience. I learned how to listen and how to get them to listen to me. And then I continued as long as I could until COVID kicked in. Uh, I went to speak with some coal miners about climate change and then just about then COVID kicked in and it made the continuing research for my book more difficult. I know you start the book off with your experience at the Flat Earth Conference in 2018 and what an experience that was. You know, one thing that struck me was you mentioned uh, how often flat earth deniers are ridiculed and we're seeing this kind of happen with other topics like vaccinations. And I'm wondering, what did you learn about why ridicule backfires and why, at least with the flat earth believers so firmly entrenched in that belief? Mm -hmm. I, I just, I don't know. If, there is actually a little bit of empirical research, which shows that ridicule and insult doesn't work. But I also think that it's more or less common sense to understand that if you ridicule somebody for their beliefs, you're not going to change their mind. I mean, there's just this built-in human tendency. If, if somebody if I believe that the sky was blue, and it is, and somebody insulted me about that, I mean, I would, I would just, I would resist, I would find a way, you know, to, to push back against that person. So I knew that wasn't going to work. And what I determined at the Flat Earth Convention is that although they said that their beliefs were based on evidence, they really were based on identity, because they had almost all, it wasn't about doubt, it was about trust. They had grown to distrust scientists, government officials, people in the media, teachers, astronauts, airplane pilots, millions of people around the globe, every world leader. 
um, because they thought that they were all lying to them. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that state, uh, it's a good question where your evidence is coming from and how you could uh, reason on the basis of evidence. So that's what I decided to talk to them about. I didn't come in there and start talking Galileo and Newton because they'd already read that and rejected it but through mistrust, distrust. Uh, so what I decided to do was try a, a different tack as a philosopher, start talking about how they were reasoning on the basis of evidence, their logic, their, uh, you know, how they were making their inferences, what would convince them. That question I, I loved to use their Karl Popper's question, I would say, okay, if your belief is based on evidence, and you take yourself to be a scientist, yes, we do, we do, what evidence could convince you that you were wrong? That got them to stop and think for a minute. And when you get somebody off their talking points, that's a really important moment when you maybe you're planting the seed of doubt, or just having a human connection. Because by showing respect and curiosity about why they believe what they believe, not giving them a platform to say, you know, that I believed them, but to say, you know, as a human being, let's talk about our great difference here. Um, We had some really interesting conversations. And they were not, they were uncomfortable sometimes, but I wouldn't say that people were unpleasant to me, they really were not. And that's something that struck me, too. In fact, you went to dinner with um, an individual that seemed at least initially open to the idea of conducting an experiment that would test or refute their belief. And, you know, now we've had a few tourists go up to space, right? They went up. Oh, oh, yes. Right. Isn't that fascinating? It is. So, So in the end, I believe that person sort of rejected the option to test the experiment. And he he did. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. There was a fellow there in the ballroom called Mad Mike Hughes. And he had his own self-built rocket that he had taken off in to to try to get up high enough to to test, you know, for actual evidence. And I mean, I've got to respect the uh, the experimental attitude there. Now, he only went up 1800 feet, uh, which is not as tall as the tallest building in the world. So I'm, I'm not sure that he saw much. And he unfortunately later died the following year from that. Uh, another rocket where he, or maybe it was that very same rocket where he uh, had a, a, you know, catastrophic failure. But um, there were some folks at the Flat Earth Convention with the experimental attitude. and, And the experimental attitude really means if I'm right, I should see this. And if I don't see this, I've got to give up my belief. And so this fellow that I pulled off stage and, you know, we we talked for two hours over dinner, he was a really smart guy. And he had just given a seminar, in fact, on how to convince people to get into flat earth using the same techniques that I was trying to use to get them out of it, you know, calm, respect, listening, uh, patience. And so we had a very interesting encounter where I just led with that question, what could convince you to give up your belief in flat earth? And he said, well, maybe I'd have to travel up in a rocket. And then he said, no, maybe the window would be curved. I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, a little conspiracy theory there, but you know, all right. And so we continued to talk. And I said, look, 
how about I've been, you know, in your seminars for a whole day listening. The first day I just kept my mouth shut and I just listened. And somebody talked about how you don't believe that Antarctica is a continent. And he said, well, it's, it's not. You know, it's a mountain range spread out around the perimeter of the earth. And I said, if you're right, it's 24,000 miles long. But if I'm right, it's a thousand miles long. So let's fly over it. And he said, those flights don't exist. And from my back pocket, I pulled the manifest to show, or the, uh, the, the flight information. Yes, there is a flight from uh, uh, South America to New Zealand. And he said, have you been on that flight? And I said, no, let's go. And so he shook on it and we decided to go. And then I asked him for a criteria to judge, not just looking out the window, which might be curved, but I wanted to know. Uh, you know, if we could have something to, to actually measure. And what I came up with was the idea that if he was right and it was 24,000 miles long, we'd have to stop for fuel because no plane could make it that far. But if I was right, then we wouldn't have to stop for fuel. And he shook my hand. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to go to my, all my friends on Twitter and we're going to crowdfund. And, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to have a crucial experiment with a flat earther who's committed to give up his view if he's proven wrong. A couple of minutes later, he he uh, backed out and I asked him why. And he said that it was because he thought that maybe the entire history of air travel was a hoax designed to convince people that planes had to stop to be refueled. Now, at that point, I would have been in my rights to say, well, it really isn't about evidence then, is it? It's about faith, because you just told me that, you know, any crucial experiment we could do wouldn't satisfy you. But I didn't do that uh, because I didn't want the conversation to end. And, you know, so we we continued to talk. But that that was the important moment in the conversation, though we continue to talk afterward. Right. Well, you know, I found their explanations like and their um, reasoning to be quite mind bending. And I encourage everyone to pick up a copy yes. of of Lee McIntyre's <laughs> book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers and Others Who Defy Reason. And, you, you know, you brought up a lot of things I want to touch on that are really important, um, you know, conspiracy theories, identity and 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 beliefs, uh, all of that. I did, though, want to sort of you mentioned something in the book that intrigued me, uh, that YouTube was really like sort of the gateway drug for flat yes. earth belief. What is that about? Do you do you have any insight into why that's the case? I don't have great insight into why it's the case, but I know that it's the case because almost everyone I spoke to there, I would have a conversation with them in which I would say, well, how did you get into Flat Earth? And they would say, well, I used to be a globalist like you. But then one day, you know, and then something happened to break their trust in scientists or, you know, in some way, sometimes it was a traumatic experience. But, you know, as they began to think about who they could trust and who they couldn't, maybe searching for conspiracy theories online, I don't know, Flat Earth is out there. And once you watch a Flat Earth video on YouTube, the algorithm on YouTube gives you 20 more of them. Mm. And I think that the mentality is, they're very slickly produced. And if you don't know a lot of physics, and if you know you're already conspiracy minded, you might watch this and think, wow, I really can't refute that. It must be right. Yeah. Look at all these people who believe this. And so there's a, a there's an excellent psychologist at uh, down in Texas, I forget which university, named Ashley Landrum. 
she's writing a whole book on flat earthers. And I'll bet when her book comes out, she's got more of an answer to that uh, okay. because YouTube is the gateway drug. If you want to think of it that way, that pulls people in to flat earth. And I've watched these videos and, you know, and I've watched the one, other ones that exist to try to refute these videos. And it's, uh, I don't really see what people see in the videos, but they're convincing to a lot of people. Well, so that's interesting because I think, you know, when we, you know, in your book, you discuss a, a lot of science denying topics and all of them seem to be grounded in conspiracy theories. Correct. So how does, from your perspective, how does conspiracy theories fit into science denialism and, and what makes someone susceptible to conspiracy theories? Yeah, I'll answer the latter part first. It's a fascinating question, isn't it? Why? Yeah. You know, what happens here? People have written about conspiracy theories have been around since Nero. You know, the idea that he was the one who burnt Rome was the, the first conspiracy theory. And then he probably came up with the second one that, no, it was the Christians who did it. You know, uh, so I mean, these have been around for a long time. What makes us susceptible? Certain type of cognitive bias. I, I, I don't know. Wanting to be in on the secret, but they are a conspiracy theories are a core part of the blueprint of science denial reasoning. Um, there were some cognitive scientists a few years back who did some research to find that there were in fact five um, tropes of science denial reasoning, the blueprint that they all use, cherry picking evidence, belief in conspiracy theories, illogical reasoning, um, reliance on fake experts, and belief that science has to be perfect. Those five are you know, that's, again, that's your blueprint for science and our reasoning. And flat earthers, climate deniers, anti-vaxxers, evolution deniers, they all hit those five same bumps in the highway. That's just, that's how they reason. And in the book, each time I mention a science denial topic, I'll go through each of those five to show, you know, yes, this is where the conspiracy theory is in evolution or in anti-vax or in COVID denial. It's, it's always there. Yeah. And I want to talk about two of those in particular, uh, cherry picking and science being perfect. Um, yes. But but first, conspiracy theories are really insidious and yeah. it, it seems like a pretty tough nut to crack once it's taken hold in, in someone's belief system. And yet there's this fast sort of cognitive dissonance that seems to happen within an individual that subscribes to some of these conspiracy theories. So, for example, when it comes to vaccines, why are folks ready to accept the many, many side effects of other medications? I mean, I've seen the commercials. You might just have eczema, but you'll end up with restless leg syndrome, stroke, uh, blindness, uh, you know, yeah. all of these things um, that probably happen at a much higher frequency than the infinitesimally small side effect of any vaccine. So how do, from a philosophical standpoint, how do people reconcile these yeah. opposing beliefs? You, you you brought up exactly, I think, the, the right way to think about them, because conspiracy theories are rooted in distrust. So if you can't trust other people, what are you left with? You're left with your own reasoning. What makes sense to you? 
Well, that's when cognitive bias comes knocking on your door because motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, we want to believe certain things and we don't want to believe others. And so we're much more prone, and this has been empirically demonstrated, to, to require more evidence for the things that we don't want to believe and less evidence for the things that we do. When that happens, you're well on your way to a conspiracy theory because the the, the very, I, I, I'm thinking about this for a while, I think the most toxic thing about a conspiracy theory is that they count both evidence and lack of evidence as proof that the conspiracy is correct. If there's even a shred of evidence for it, they'll cherry pick that off and say, yes, see, see. And if there's no evidence whatsoever, they'll say, well, that just shows you how good the conspirators are, which means that they're living in this hermetically sealed bubble where no evidence or lack of evidence can possibly convince them to give up this conspiracy theory, which means that the reason that they hold it is because it makes sense to them. And maybe there's nothing that can break them out of it. It's it's really, I think, maybe the most insidious form of reasoning. Yeah. And I think with, that as humans, I don't know that other animals um, engage in such deep, deep self-delusion. Um, I'm not sure if they do, right? I have no... That's interesting. Um, I, I think that some people know what they know that they're saying is untrue. But for many people, maybe not the orchestrators of, you know, the, the planting the seeds, but that many people don't know that they don't that they, that what they're saying is it's almost hidden from their own conscious mind it's, and yeah. i i it's something i've been interested in is that i don't know that other animals engage in in such self delusion it's unless it's really ad- adaptive in some way um and we do it so maybe it is adaptive in some way and then it's just for us right yeah and then it's just yeah. sort of like a mismatch in certain environments um that that takes that is, off. I, I, I've never heard anybody bring that up. That is a really fascinating idea because not only why would it be adaptive for us, but not for other animals, but just to ask the question of whether other animals delude themselves, because if they did, it would have to be adaptive. Otherwise, it wouldn't have survived. Right. And I've read some really interesting work by um, Hugo Mercier and uh, I forget his last name, Spare Bear, um, on this question of why we would, how, how could delusion, how could any cognitive bias be adaptive? And maybe it's because, you know, you just think, well, why not have true beliefs? That's what's most adaptive, except that we live in communities and there's a, it's part of our survival to bond with the other members of our community and maybe to believe something that wasn't true. If it's what everybody around us believes, maybe that's, you know, an important part of our survival, but other animals live in communities as well. Do they share their beliefs? Do they communicate their beliefs as we do? Maybe it's a function of language. You've opened up a whole door for me there of of interest. Um, Because, I mean, that's a really fascinating question. Yeah. And I would posit that um, other animals, it would be unusual for, uh, you know, I would be, uh, I would want some way to test the hypothesis because my gut instinct would be that if, if it's adaptive for us, it exists in other species, our ability to detect it and to know what what they believe that might not be true, but, you know, um, but that serves an adaptive purpose. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think we're approaching a situation in human society where it is becoming maladaptive and does not serving us. Right. And so, and that's where, you know, the forces, um, you know, that, that drive sort of, I think, um, changes in behavior or other selective forces, you know, would operate much more rapidly in other species than perhaps yes. know, our, our human constructed societies. So, so I hope you write that paper, study that uh, post truth and crows, you know, however you have to, uh, <laughs> what population you study. There is a famous, I'm sure you, you know, Robert Trivers, the, yes. the biologist who has written the book, The Folly of Fools, yes. where he's, he's fascinated with this question of delusion illusion, yeah. you know, in the human population, but as an evolutionary psychologist, he's really fascinated with how delusion could possibly survive the mechanism of evolution and comes to the conclusion, which is fascinating too, that the way to be a better liar is to learn how to lie to yourself. And maybe lying is what's adaptive. And so we learn how to lie to ourselves and then we get other, we're charlatan, we get other people to believe us. Maybe. Yeah, this, this is really interesting. Okay, well, I, I see a collaboration here, but let's go back to <laughs> your book, which is really sparked all of these questions, right? And all of these sort of thoughts. Um, and I just want to talk about cherry picking because you mentioned that as one of the five sort of main blueprints for cultivating um, conspiracy theory, science denialism. And I think it's an important important one because in science we know that there can be seemingly contradictory evidence and we are often sometimes ourselves accused of cherry picking so can you just sort of maybe give a little bit of a in that context how can we think about cherry picking and and how to spot it cherry picking you know sometimes people will say well what's wrong with cherry picking you're using evidence you know, uh, I mean, you asked for evidence, I gave you evidence. The, the problem is that you have no way to know whether the evidence that you're citing from, you know, if somebody's mo do, engaging in motivated reasoning is a representative sample. And that's really what science is about. It's not about proof. It's about um, drawing a conclusion based on an assessment of the evidence. And so if you're only, you know, gathering evidence from one point of view, then you're not going to have a good uh, a good sample. And and I mean that comes straight out of the cognitive bias we were talking about, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. People want to be right. You challenge their theory, they'll give you an example of why the theory is uh, is true. So that's the problem with cherry picking. We all do it. Even scientists, even philosophers, we all engage in cherry picking. But it is it undermines scientific reasoning because cherry picking allows the person to what we were just talking about, delude themselves to live in a world in which they're only looking at the evidence, which suggests that they're right. So they might be missing something important. And one of the things that I think is absolutely crucial about science is that scientists are open to new evidence and are willing to change their mind on its basis, which means that you know, as Karl Popper uh, uh, argued, you have to be willing to convince yourself that you're wrong. You have to be, uh, you know, what that flat earther was not willing to do, right? You have to be able to say in advance, if you could show this, that would convince me that I was wrong. So that, I mean, that's kind of the opposite of cherry picking, isn't it? It's not just cherry picking to try to confirm that you're right. It's going out and actively looking for evidence that you're wrong. That's what's so beautiful about science. And that's why when you look at what a denier does, 
they they're not reasoning as a scientist does because they're not trying to convince themselves that they're wrong. They're instead trying to gather evidence to show that they're right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think in the um, in the ultimate principle of science, everything that you're saying is absolutely correct. In the practice of science, <laughs> scientists are still humans, right? Yes. And I have met more than a, one who was unable to you know, rethink a conclusion yes. in the until there was some surmountable, you know, insurmountable amount of evidence yes. that changed an existing paradigm. I mean, you know, from mating behavior to, yeah. you know, um, all kinds of things. And so I, I'm going here in a few places here. Um, but first, I will say myself as a scientist, I remember having a conversation with a, another scientist where I said, you know, when I design a study or I have a question, I don't really care about the answer. Like I'm not that attached to the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm not uh, out to prove my own mm -hmm. thoughts. I'm curious. I have a question. I think I might have an idea of what the outcome is going to be, but if I find the opposite, I'm okay with that. Like, I think that's even more interesting. In fact, my entire dissertation was negative results. <laughs> and and I published all six chapters, which is a big feat in science to publish negative results, yes. which goes to this kind of topic that we're, we're thinking about. And so I'm wondering, do you, do you think that people distrust science for both the fact that it always seems to change mm -hmm. and because sometimes it's resistant to change. You know, this is a question that I took up in my earlier book, The Scientific Attitude, because I had uh, I, I went there. I mean, I talked about the flaws in scientific reasoning, the times when scientists are cherry picking instances of fraud, um, simple things like the the ability to well, well p hacking is not simple, but the, the ability to hold a study open for more data because you kind of think that if you get more data, you'll prove your hypothesis or closing a study the minute you get enough data, which, you know, confirms your hypothesis. You know, there are ways that scientists, uh, I'm sure that, you know, you as a scientist know better than anyone. There are ways that scientists can can cheat that are short of fraud. And here's the thing. Sometimes they cheat without thinking they're cheating, right? Because they're deluding themselves, right? You know, well, I've got to get more data because I know this hypothesis is right. So, you know, let's run the experiment again. Throughout the earlier trial that showed the negative results, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll exclude that one from the study. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing about science, though, I think, and what I defended in the book Science hangs a flag on those flaws and it tries to root them out. And other scientists are ruthless in finding one another's mistakes. So, yes, individual scientists can delude themselves, but it's much, much, much harder to delude the entire profession when they're you know, going to get a lot of credit and interest in showing that you've made a methodological error, that your result is wrong. So I like to say that scientists keep one another honest, even if they were honest in the first place. Yeah. And by the way, that makes individual scientists say, well, I don't want to be publicly embarrassed here. So, I, you know, I'd better, you know, run another data set because I don't want to rush to, you know, to publication. Absolutely. So that can make science deniers that gives them sometimes grist for their mill to say, well, look, these scientists are biased. They have an agenda. Look how they cheated on this study or that study was retracted or here's an instance of fraud. 
I think the remarkable thing is that science works as well as it does. I mean, if fraud were worse than it is, science couldn't go forward. I mean, most scientists are trustworthy and police themselves. And it's really an amazing thing that it, you know, that it, uh, that it works so well. Deniers also, I think, you know, in addition to looking for bias and, you know, uh, politics, however you want to think of it, you know, this scientist is, you know, not really honest. Um, They're also, um, they misunderstand what science is about. And this is what you asked about earlier, the fifth trope in the science denial blueprint. They, science deniers often think that science has to prove its result, that it's about certainty, because if they can't prove their result, then anything might be possible including their, you know, crackpot hypothesis. And worse, that not only that it could be possible, but that it's equally likely to be true because they don't trust the scientists who are coming up with the data on the other side. So, you know, if if there's one thing that I wish were better about science education, it's that, you know, in the early grades, I wish that they spent less time teaching science appreciation and more talking about how scientists actually reason, warts and all, the failures, the uncertainty, you know, the, the screwed up experiments, because I think that reveals what's really remarkable about science, which is the scientific attitude, the mindset, the yeah. ability to say, I screwed up, the data say that I was wrong, therefore I'm going to change my mind. It's that flexibility that's the opposite of science denial. It's the opposite of what I've called post-truth. It's it's just, it's the greatest form of reasoning, I think, that we've ever come up with. Well, so this, this brings up a number of things as this entire conversation is continuing to bring up lots of things. Um, so I'm really loving this. Um, you know, overwhelmingly, people seem to basically trust science, or at least they did in 2015. I'm not sure if they feel that way anymore. Um, But I loved what you said about misunderstanding what science is, because science is a process, not an outcome, right? And it's a way of knowing and it's a way of approaching our understanding. And I think that when it comes to uncertainty, I agree teaching uh, about uncertainty at an early age would be helpful. It seems to me though, as just generally as human beings, we reject uncertainty. We really dislike uncertainty. It makes us really uncomfortable um, to have Mm -hmm. uncertainty. And so, you know, is there a way to, um, is that the way to cultivate comfort with, Uh, in the face of uncertainty, right? Because when science seems equivocal or the result seems controversial, you, right, denialists win. And and so if science can't be perfect and we need to learn how to embrace uncertainty in our knowledge and our understanding of the world around us, what do we do? do? You you captured that so well because denialists, you know, you look at the first, modern science denialist campaign when the tobacco companies got together to fight the science, which was, you know, going to show that a cigarette smoking was linked to lung cancer. They didn't need to prove that it didn't. They needed to raise doubt. They needed to say, this is uncertain. Nobody knows. And here's the truth. At a certain level, it is uncertain because any empirical correlation is uncertain. Correlation's not causation. 
So they were sort of kind of in their lying way telling the truth when they said, you know, the, the definitive link between cigarette smoking and cancer has never been conclusively established. You know, yes, technically speaking, you know, if you're David Hume, yeah, they're, they're, they're probably right about that. But they're misleading in doing that because what they're doing is they're raising doubt about something that there really was no scientific doubt. So I guess the other thing to say about the way that scientists reason then is scientists do seem to me to recognize that they can't prove things with certainty. There are error bars. There are always, you know, a certain confidence interval. But somehow when they get out talking in the general public and they get a nasty question from a denier, I will sometimes hear them say, no, this has been proven or we know this. And that's a big mistake because then when you change your mind, which happens in the course of, you know, being an honest scientist, um, even if it's just change your mind around the edges of something, then it's the aha, I don't trust you anymore. And I think that's what we got into with mask wearing. They, the public health officials changed their mind about mask wearing, which is because they got more data. But to the person who was already disinclined to trust scientists and the person who didn't understand that uncertainty was a strength, not a weakness of science, because it means you can learn from more evidence, that was grounds for distrust. So the advice that I've been out there bellowing is that more scientists need to be involved with deniers. And in doing so, but in doing so, they need to embrace uncertainty. It may feel scary because it may feel like, well, we're just giving ammunition to the deniers to say, aha, you don't know this. But then it's an opening to talk about probability. Then it's an opening to say, okay, you're right. We can't prove that anthropogenic climate change is real because by the way, we can't prove that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. We can't prove, you know, that you're not going to turn into a chicken in 10 minutes. We can't prove any of this, right? But what we do have are such overwhelming data that we can talk about the probability. And I remember reading last year that Reuters was reporting now that there was a a five, that evidence was at the five sigma level for climate change, which means that that's a one out of a million chance that the deniers are right. And I think that's enough. If you present it to a climate denier to say, well, I can't prove it because nothing can be proven, but there's a one out of a million chance that you're right. Can you live with that? I think that's enough. And I think that's honest. And I think we can defend that. Um, The worst thing that I see is when scientists get caught in a debate with the denier and they think I'm just going to wipe the floor with this guy and they're not prepared to have all of their evidence questioned. And then their fallback is, no, this has been proven because then the denier will say, well, show me the proof. And you can't. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of the mistakes that scientists make, uh, some more of the mistakes and how to overcome that in, in just a minute. I, since you brought up climate change, and I'm glad you did. That was where I was heading next. You know, let's talk about climate change. I have the privilege of attending the COP26 uh, this November. And for folks out there that may not know what that is, it is the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference uh, happening in Scotland. And You know, when I think about what you were just saying about how scientists 
need to, you know, engage with uh, denialists and and around this topic of climate change. And even what you mentioned about the masks, you know, it, climate change was initially packaged as global warming for a really long time. That was sort of the messaging. And I always thought that was a mistake because it implied that the earth is just going to get hot. <laughs> and uh, and that's not accurate, right? Some places are going to get uh, hotter and, and drier. Some are going to get hotter and wetter. Some are going to get colder. It's going to vary geographically depending right. on lots of different variables. And so now there's been sort of a rebrand and it's climate change. And on the ground, many people uh, whose backgrounds you would think lend themselves to be deniers readily acknowledge that they've seen change. And uh, the sticking point seems to be the cause. You you uh, went and met with coal miners to talk about climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from them about their thinking on this? Yeah, it, that, that was one of the most fascinating moments in the research for the book, because I, I was admonishing myself. Not, I mean, why did I pick coal miners? Because I thought, well, you know, th these are folks who are, you know, uh, forget who it was who said uh, it was either Sinclair Lewis or Lewis Sinclair. I think mixed up. I guess it was Lewis Sinclair who said um, it's hard to get a man to question something when his salary depends on him, you know, not questioning it. And so I thought, OK, coal miners. But then I started to do a little bit of reading about it. And I thought, what am I going in there with this preconception that coal miners are going to be climate deniers? Maybe that's not the case. I really don't know. And so I had some friends help me uh, who were uh, former uh, union organizers. I went to rural Pennsylvania, uh, right? You know, the corner that borders with uh, West Virginia where all the coal is. And they put together a dinner where I was going to pay for, you know, coal miners and others to come. We we're going to have a conversation about climate change, not in an accusatory or confrontational way, just to talk, you know, an evening to talk about it. Three coal miners showed up all of whom believed in climate change. So all of my uh, uh, preconceptions kind of went out the window. Then I started to think, well, maybe the ones who didn't believe in it didn't want to come, you know, uh, you know, what, what am I going to learn from this? But as I spoke to the people who were there, I gained an entirely new appreciation for the problem about climate change, which is that it's not just about denial, because those climate uh, those uh, coal miners were not, they didn't deny climate change. But I asked them, okay, but how do you reconcile that in your mind that you know you're doing something to harm the planet? And one of the guys said, he said, you've got to remember that coal miners are fatalistic. I go in down, I go down into that mine every day expecting that it might be my last day. And if I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to risk that, then the risk to the earth, the risk to future generations, or even my generation here, is nothing compared with what I'll do to feed my family. And I thought, aha. So there's a sense in which he's a victim of the coal industry. He's a, a you know a victim of you know how this is um, going forward. There there aren't that many coal miners left in the uh, in the United States, but you know they're what can they do? You know, given where they live, what else could they they do for a living? And um, it really 
it reminded me of something that I, I for that part of the book, I also did some research out in the in the Maldives because I the flat earthers had always said, you, have you seen it? Have you been there? Have you have you witnessed it? You know, that was their big deal. And I thought, well, I'm going to go see the nation that's the most threatened. And I saw I I um, scuba did a scuba diving th- or uh, um, snorkeling uh, in the uh, Indian Ocean. And I got to see coral death firsthand. And when I got back in the boat, uh, I was speaking to the Maldivian crew. Uh, one of them said, outside the Mald, I told him what I was doing. And he said, outside the Maldives, no one cares. And I got to thinking that it's not just about belief, it's about caring. Because I, st- and then I started to think, even if I could change the mind of every science denier in the United States on climate change, we still might be left with the crucial 25% of Congress that are deniers. And then I started to think, are they really deniers? Do they really believe that? Or do they just not care? Do they care more about their jobs than they do about the truth or about future generations, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really opened up this whole world for me of thinking, not just about how to push back against deniers about climate change, but how to think about how to get people to change their action around climate change? How do we find the coal miners new jobs? How do we help the people in the Maldives not to suffer the immediate consequences that are coming for them first, you know, within the next decade or so? How do we get people in Congress to heed the idea that, you know, they're doing something that the majority of voters don't want them to do? It's not just about denialist belief. Well, and something that you mentioned earlier struck me when you were talking about the coal miners and maybe even those uh, folks in Congress and other people who may not deny that climate change is happening, um, but are unwilling to do anything was identity, right? So for Mm -hmm. this coal miner, Mm -hmm. what struck you mentioned identity back in the beginning, and I I want to circle back to it using this coal miner, because what what they effectively said to you was, my identity is a person who takes care of their family first. And I will do anything to do that, even if I know that it's going to harm others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, why is it in, in a lot of your research and in the book, you talk about challenging identity as being really emotionally charged? Because I imagine if you said to this person, well, you shouldn't do that. Um, that's wrong. The, the what you would get back would be pretty emotionally charged. Being, how dare yes. you tell me I can't take care of my family? That's right. And so, as a philosopher, can you, uh, you know, yeah. and as a human, right? Can you give us a little primer on how beliefs and identity become linked together? I, I can, but I have to say, I'm going to challenge the premise there because I'm not sure that values and identity are the same thing. Because I think that the coal miners that I spoke with, they reminded me of the the uh, men in the neighborhood that I grew up with. My father was a, a blue collar, you know, working man, and he reminded me of all my dad, my dad's friends, and the values that they had. And if if you had said to one of the coal miners, "You can't be a coal miner anymore. That's not your identity. You're going to have to do a different job," you're still not touching their values of feeding their family. Okay. Um, 
so I, I'm, I think, I think there's a little, so, so that we, we can play around with that if, if more if you, if, if you want to, but on the question of belief and identity, I think that an interesting thing that happens is that everyone wants community. Everyone is looking for other people who believe what they believe. And if you distrust scientists, politicians, the media, et cetera, et cetera, you're kind of looking for your community. And if you find it amongst people who believe what you believe, even if it's not based on facts, that's a very powerful thing, that social aspect to belief that we were talking about before. And so there's a very real sense, I think, in which if you challenge somebody's denialist beliefs, you're challenging who they are. Because you're saying, you can't be a member of this community anymore, this team who makes you feel smart and makes you feel like you belong and makes you feel important, uh, you know, in the world that you have to give all of that up. Uh, I think here of a, of a book that I read uh, called Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Saslow about a white supremacist who was, you know, so wired in his entire family. He'd been raised to be the leader of the movement. And he went to college and was talked out of white supremacy by a group uh, of Jewish students who invited him to Shabbat dinner every Saturday, knowing who he was, uh, uh, got through to him. So, I mean, that was an identity. That was not only a belief change. That was an identity change. Uh, so, you know, there is a sense in which it's all uh, uh, tied up like that. Now, the uncomfortable question that arises out of that is, are all of our beliefs based on identity? Scientific beliefs? How could that be the case? Because even if you identify as a scientist and you under the core values of science, your beliefs should be changeable based on the evidence. So I, you know, I started, so there was that moment when I started to think if belief is based on identity, is that true of scientists? And I came to the conclusion that no, because scientific beliefs about empirical subjects anyway, were based on the evidence and that that was what was different with science deniers because their belief despite their protests, were not really based on evidence. They were based on identity. Yeah. And and that, so that, again, that's where I want to carve out the thing for the coal miners that I talked to, because their commitment to take care of their family, I think was one, it was a normative commitment based on values, not about facts. So they weren't pretending that some fact was true that wasn't because it preserved their identity. Yeah. They were simply saying, I will go to the depths of hell to feed my family. And I understood that. Okay. So I, I appreciate you making that distinction. That was really helpful for me. And I, I only know one or two scientists whose identity is tied to their results and they, they've staked their entire reputation. Yeah. So when you think yes. about reputation and your standing in the community yeah. and, and it causes you to reject facts, that's where your identity and facts are coming into conflict. Is is did yeah. I summarize that? You you did. And and what okay. happens to those scientists? Yeah, they, they are eventually read out of the profession. They because certainly are. They are no longer do uh, uh, abiding by the values uh the, you know the community standards of science and however brilliant they might think they are about whatever they've staked themselves to 
it will probably eventually be overthrown as Newton and Ptolemy and all the greats have been, you know, overthrown. Whatever they think is uh, is right. And and by the way, this happens to communities too, right? Think about those instances when you know the entire profession, you know, laughs at Wegener or you know laughs at uh, uh, Galileo. Um, the the profession eventually has to change their mind, and you know, so right. their you know uh, professions can have an identity. Uh, uh, academic uh, departments can have an identity that they have to change. So it, it's it's not a ridiculous question, I think, to to wonder: is this a belief based on identity or is it based on facts? Yeah. You know, just even to raise that question keeps us honest. If you raise it that way to a denier. They get pissed off right. because they they do they do not want to think of it that way. And uh, the 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 book that I read that really turned me on to this idea was uh, Michael Patrick Lynch's book uh, Know It All Society, where he really expl- he's a fellow philosopher and a friend, and he really talks about this question of delusion and belief and the difference between your beliefs and your convictions. You know how convictions are stronger than beliefs, and the role you know just the role that identity plays and all that. And there's been some really fascinating empirical research on identity that I, uh, that I, again, I cite in the book on this, this, you know, fascinating question of the difference between ideology and identity, that sometimes you say, oh, that scientific belief, that, that denialist belief is just based on ideology. But there's a fine distinction between ideology and identity. Uh, Liliana Mason from Michigan State did some work on this, finding that this was in the political realm. She found that, you know, if you ask people, would you live next door to, you know, would you ha- have a drink with somebody who was, you know, believed in abortion, uh, believed in climate change, you know, believed in, you know, listing off these liberal values, that people would, you know, conservatives would say, well, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. But if you said, would you live next door or would you date or would you this or that? A Democrat, no, hate him. So it was the identity. It was the label that upset people. Yeah. That, yeah. That's So, so the, the question of identity, both labeling and what it feels like inside, just to ask that question, who am I? Where do I fit into the world? Do my beliefs give me a team to root for? What's the script today? What, what, can I check my information sources and find out what I'm supposed to believe today? That's a very powerful thing. Well, and I think that's, you know, inquisitive minds and self-reflective minds um, engage in those questions a lot. And, you know, I think when I hear that someone feels their identity is being threatened, I hear fear. And you talk about, and I really liked this, you know, how you talk about showing respect, listening, building a positive relationship, having kindness and compassion. You know, I had Dr. John Tyler Benfett on uh, last week, and he talked about kindness and and ironically using canines as the, um, you know, as the door into our emotions. And so, you know, can it be helpful for us to think about that maybe when we are engaging in conversations with science, uh, people who are denying a certain scientific principles or facts, uh, whether it's a flat earth or climate change or vaccines or any number of other ones, if we think that they might be feeling afraid to embrace yes. new information, can that be helpful in generating sort of compassion and understanding? Yes. 
Okay. So it's because it's because I think it's not just fear, it's alienation. It's this feeling of a break between you and and other folks. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of face-to-face conversation with science deniers, because I think that it enlarges their circle of who's trustworthy in the world. When you have a face-to-face conversation with someone, you build trust. I felt it in talking with the, the flat earthers. There was probably nobody on the planet with whom I disagreed more about a factual issue than them. But we had respectful conversations with one another. If it had been online, I don't think it may have been that way. But face-to-face, it, it was. And th- there's that moment in a human conversation when we realize, you know, we we actually do agree on other things. Why are, you know, we having trouble on this one thing? And and people will listen better if you listen to them first and they'll they'll reach out. It really is, I think, uh, I think the way to go. Because, and here's something I don't often talk about, but you've you've pulled it out of me. And it was in the book a little bit. A lot of the flat earthers that I spoke with had had a traumatic experience in their life that had led to them feeling afraid and alienated and distrustful. Sometimes it was a health matter. Sometimes it was a break in a personal relationship. For some of them, it was 9-11 that, you know, was such a huge, you know, wound uh, to, you know, to all of our psyches that they thought, how could that be? You know, somebody must be lying to me, you know, beginning of that conspiracy theory. And once you believe that one conspiracy theory about 9-11, then what else are they lying to me about? And they ended up with flat earth. So there was some hurt. Uh, And I mean, it cannot be easy to be a flat earther. They're persecuted by their family, their job, their church. I mean, when they come out in public as a flat earther, they're ridiculed and and ostracized, sometimes lose their jobs. So it, it is... I did have a certain amount of compassion for them because nobody would fake that. And my friends, when I started to go, would say, well, these people are just trolling. They're just pretending. Nobody would do that. Who would endure that kind of abuse? You know, to, to go, maybe some people online are just having fun, but to go to the convention, I I, I just don't think so. Yeah. And so, and, and the other factor here, though you, you haven't asked me to talk about it, but I, I want to shoehorn it in, is that many science deniers i think are victims because they are there are people actively creating disinformation out there science denial is not an accident it's a lie it's not a mistake somebody is creating the disinformation about vaccines yeah that people are you know then it's amplified on social media people start to believe it they're afraid they don't know who to trust they're victims we need some empathy yeah. And it's hard because they're also killing us by Correct. not taking the vaccine. That's and right. I understand that. And I'm angry about that as a lot of people are. Sure. But when you're speaking with somebody who's an anti-vaxxer and you're trying to change their mind, if you show that anger, it's just going to shut them down. Well, so it's interesting because one, you bring up that it's possible to hold multiple emotions at the same time and then to choose what to bring to the conversation or to bring forward in your engagement with someone. Um, The other thing that you brought up, which is not just with vaccines, but climate change, all of it is an advertising campaign um, that, you know, and not to be a conspiracy theorist, but you can always follow the money and there's somebody benefiting 
from um, some some entity, right? Maybe not an individual. Tobacco denial, climate denial. Yeah. Clear clear economic interests. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, and as you pointed out in the beginning, once you fall into one. Uh, trap, you are more likely to believe others. And so it primes you for more conspiracy theories and, and easier to believe. Yeah. So, so now I just want to, I, I want to be mindful of your time. And I just want to kind of get to, uh, how do we solve this? How do we begin to undo this? We know we need to come without aggression and without anger and, mm -hmm. and come with openness and respect, but but what can we do, and, and not just me as a scientist, but all of us to start to try to you know, back this train up a bit? Yeah, it's, it's a, it, that's the question in the science denial debate. And to answer it, I think we really have to realize that there's not one problem, there are three. There's the creation of disinformation, there's the amplification of disinformation, and then there's the uptake of disinformation. My book is really directed at the third problem, what to do once the disinformation is out there in the wild and all these people in society are believing it. Then I think we've really got no choice but to you know, handle it in the, in the, the way that I've recommended with patience and, and calm and respect. But we also have to realize that the best solution of all is not to let those people hear that disinformation, you know, to, to keep them from being uh, bombarded with uh, untruths. Now, that's a much harder question because you ask, what can we as individual citizens do? Well, I can go out and talk to as many science centers as I want. I'm not sure how to stop a campaign of disinformation from a tobacco company or, you know, from a from a, a fossil fuel company. I'm not so sure what I can do about social media. What I'm trying to do as an individual is raise attention. I think we're in an information war. Uh, I think that what began with the tobacco companies created the blueprint. This Naomi Oreskes argues this in, in her brilliant book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, created the blueprint for science denial after that. But then that metastasized into post-truth. That, that went into the political subordination of reality about elections, about insurrections and all the other things, you know, uh, a QAnon, all the things now where people are not just questioning scientific facts, but facts, reality, you know, truth as we know it. How do we push back against that? I, I think, and, and I didn't write much about this in the book, though there's a little bit. It's what I'm thinking about now. I think that we need to identify the creators of the disinformation. Some are the folks with the economic interest, but I think that there are ideological and political uh, uh, rewards for creating disinformation. Um, I just had a whole thing today with a fellow on Twitter um, about something that I said on a, a, a different show where I pointed out that a lot of the anti-COVID vaccine disinformation is being created by Russian intelligence. And he said, oh, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, can you back this up? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, there are nameable entities that were you know, controlled by Russian intelligence that were doing this. And then, you know, he said, well, let me, you know, what specifically did they say? And has it been, uh, you know, gotten to the American public? 
Well, a little more digging. Yes. And I mean, this is my life, right? But he was asking for evidence. So I was going to offer him evidence. But just recognizing that we are in an information war, sometimes with foreign intelligence services that are engaging in a propaganda campaign against American science. So that some of the things that the specific thing that I brought up to him was this whole idea about the microchips being in the vaccines. That was from a Russian propaganda campaign that was propagated through a journal called Oriental Review. It was controlled by the Russians and then was pumped out to partisan and social media. And it ended up that 44 percent of Republicans believed it a month later. Now, that's a straight line. We also need to do something about amplification through Facebook, through Twitter. At the end of that Oriental Review article was a little thing. Share this on Twitter. That's how it's done. So we've got to do something about the uh, social media companies that are killing us with the disinformation. The There was a uh, story recently in NPR which showed that uh, 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to a dozen people. It does not take that many people to propagate a lie. So we've really... You asked for one answer, and I've given you three. Yeah. There, because there are three problems. We've really got a, a, a problem here, and it's not just about science denial; it's about fact denial, right. which is why I get so uh, passionate about this because I think that it's a bigger threat than people know, and it's why I bother to engage with people on Twitter and don't just say, "Ah, he's not worth talking to," you know, walk away. Because I didn't think this guy was necessarily a denier. Uh, but but he was not exactly listening to what I was telling him. And so I thought, OK, chase him down this rabbit hole, show him the facts. And I've got to check Twitter now and see how it came out. Yeah, well, you know, first, uh, I want to appreciate everything that you're doing. And I agree that and I think you use this phrase in the book. I could be wrong. Whack-a-mole. Um, you know, yes. all of us are running around, yes. you know, trying to like whack-a-mole lies. But it's the same thing, actually, with climate change and, and even any environmental issue in any locality, you have to find who's actually culpable, right? So there's That's that right. culpability, um, there's the amplification, and then there's um, the, the, you know, keeping the information away from individuals or, you know, all of us using your, um, you know, a very clear outline of what to do and what not to do in your book, how to talk to a science denier, Conversations with flat earthers, climate deniers, and others who defy reason. I'm really appreciative of you coming on the show and and talking with me. And and I just want to point out, listeners, this is a great book, and you need to go get it. But it's also not his first book on on this topic. And so, if you want a, a different perspective on some other aspects, uh, please also check out the scientific attitude, post truth, and respecting truth. And I will have links to um, this website on the show notes. And if you want to keep up with Lee McIntyre on Twitter and find out how these things go, (laughs) I will also have those links on the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. On Tuesday, September 28th, a man in Illinois died after a month long battle with not COVID rabies. He had an interaction with a bat and was bitten. In fact, he ended up having a colony of bats that lived in his house. He refused the post-exposure treatment when it was offered to him, 
which led to what must have been an excruciating and horrible death. It was the first time someone died of rabies in the United States since 1954. The treatment he refused was a combination of human rabies immune globulin, basically an antibody cocktail, and a series of rabies vaccine shots. There are three of them. Three vaccine shots is also how many you need to pre-protect yourself. There was no information on why he refused treatment. All the chatter I have heard has been about anti-vaccination, and it's important to consider that we don't actually know why he refused. The reason I bring this up is not because the treatment costs a ridiculous $10,000 on average with insurance in most places in the United States, while it's $20 per dose in Mozambique, for example. That's a completely different conversation. I bring it up because a new mRNA, you might have heard of that before, rabies vaccine was in human clinical trials in 2017. Rabies, though rare, was chosen as the first virus to test this new mRNA technology for a few reasons. According to Dr. Armbuster and colleagues, first, the virus was well understood so they knew exactly what to target. Second, we've had an effective vaccine for rabies for a while now, so that means there was really good baseline data to compare the new vaccine with the old one. And third, trials in mice and pigs showed good results. And finally, most people haven't been exposed to rabies. So in the human trials, they could get a clean response. I've got a link to the paper in the show notes. The point that I'm making here is that by the time the COVID vaccine was underway, we had already had several years of human clinical trials on the safety of an mRNA vaccine for rabies, of course. Yet that was not the conversation that most of us were having about how lucky we were that scientists had been trying to solve a problem. What problem? Developing a cheap, safe, non-needle, deliverable vaccine for rabies. And because of that, we were ready to move quickly using the same technology for a new virus like SARS-CoV-2 when it hit. You might be wondering, how did I know this? It's because I'm a scientist and I started doing research as soon as I heard about mRNA vaccine technology. I also do research simply because I'm a scientist, but also because I don't automatically trust everything and I learned how to do research and ask good questions. It's part of the reasoning Lee was talking about that scientists are so good at. I didn't have to go on faith. I scoped out the empirical data. As a result, I was also able to talk to people about all of this, and more than a few appreciated the conversation, even if all of them didn't get the shot. I have to point out that I got more information about this new COVID vaccine when I took it than any of the others I have ever received. And believe me, I've had a few, including a partial rabies shot, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis B, a partial hepatitis B series, and of course, all of the standard childhood vaccines. I'm hoping to go to Uganda next year, and a quick search told me that I will need to get my rabies properly completed. Also my hepatitis B, typhoid, and maybe I need a yellow fever booster. 
I should probably also get the meningitis vaccine, and while I'm at it, I might throw in TB just to be sure. I'm going to do that because I have no interest in experiencing any of these diseases. I would encourage everyone to find a scientist, talk to us, and do research. The challenge for the general public is that you don't necessarily have access to the peer-reviewed empirical scientific literature that I do. And if you did, you might have a hard time trying to figure out what exactly they're saying. So find a scientist, talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. All right, that's the show. And if you're enjoying the show, please join the growing Wild Connection podcast community and subscribe. You can follow the show on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Share it with others too, so they can find it. You can follow the show on Twitter at WildConnectPod, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at RealDrJen. If you want to keep up with Lee McIntyre, you can follow him on Twitter at Lee C. McIntyre, M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. I'm going to have links to all of this in the show notes. So thanks for listening.